Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the latest edition of the Philosophy Podcast. Today, we have Kevin Corrigan on, and this is going to be a great listen for you guys. Uh, he talks about his coaching journey, talks about the biggest influences uh, in his coaching career, and it's re- he's got some really interesting ones. Uh, he talks about, you know, we talk about the Notre Dame defense and, and how that has, that philosophy started and, and how it's evolved over the course of time. Talk about riding and clearing and how the mentality of being a great riding team is the most fundamental part. We talked about you, the use of video in developing players. And then finally, we talked a little bit about recruiting and we talked about um, how the new rules are manifesting themselves and how having more time is giving an opportunity for the, the families and the players to really focus on what's most important. And you'll be really interested to hear for everybody just how Kevin would suggest going about that. There's a lot of ways, but he's got one that we talk a lot about. So anyways, enjoy this. I certainly enjoyed doing it. And here we go. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by JM3 Sports. Go to www.jm3video.com to get more information on the JM3 Video Assessment Tool. So, everybody, I want to welcome Kevin Corrigan, head coach from the University of Notre Dame, onto the Philosophy Podcast. Kevin, welcome on board, and uh, great to have you on. Thanks, Jamie. Always good to be with you. Yep. How's the summer going so far? Busy. Yeah. What do you say? Back in South Bend for three days of the last six weeks or something? Yeah. You know, well, we took our team to Spain and that was, you know, that, that added 10 days of travel or 12 days of travel um, to what is already a packed schedule and then just condensed everything. So, yeah, I need to be everywhere but, but here. Uh, so every time I show up here, I look around and go, oh, my God, I need to be here. But, uh, you know, you can only do uh the the recruiting when you can do it so you got to get out there and do it that's right thank god for the dead period you know one of the great decisions that that uh we collectively collectively have made in a long time and and i i i'll give all the credit to a few people who you know were really adamant about about wanting to do it and i think it was a good thing for all of us i think we might be it might be something that we look to expand in the next few years yeah, so for all the listeners, the dead period, it used to be that you'd be recruiting on July 4th, and now there's a dead period from, what, the 1st to the 5th or something like that? Yeah, yeah, get five, five days off. It's great. It's pretty good. Um, well, Kevin, I want to talk uh, a little bit um, about your coaching journey. You've been, how long have you been at Notre Dame now? I, I, you know what? I'm about three weeks away or four weeks away from finishing 30 years. Wow. I, I, yeah, I started on August 1st in, in uh, 1988. Wow, awesome. And where did, you, where did you coach before you got to Notre Dame? Well, I coached a year of high school in, uh, in Charlottesville. Uh, then I coached – I was an assistant coach at, at, at uh, um, Notre Dame for a year. Uh, and then I was uh, the coach at Randolph-Macon College. Oh, yeah. In, uh, Division three. Um, I was there for three years, uh, the first year as an assistant, the next two years as a head coach, and then I went back to Virginia for two years as an assistant, and then I came out here. Yep. And so you had a pretty good, uh, you know, as Lars Tiffany was calling it last week, a decent little master's degree in coaching before you got there, but you probably had a lot to learn when you got to Notre Dame. So your, your coaching journey, you know, was short getting there and has been a long way since, eh? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, and I, and I think I've certainly learned a, a, an awful lot in the 30 years that I've been here, um, both because of, you know, my own mistakes and, and, uh, and, and decisions and, and, but also, you know, just the, 
being around so many great coaches at Notre Dame, playing against so many coaches and the leagues we've been in, um, you know, you're, you're constantly learning and, and whatever environment you're in. And this is a great environment for a coach to learn in. It's really interesting how, you know, you look at all these startup programs now, and then you look at sort of, I look at Denver when I kind of got it going as a startup and which was 20 years ago. So that was, uh, interesting that that was 20 years ago this summer that I stopped by the South Bend on my way out to Denver to yeah. come to the new brand new offices in the Joy Center of the Notre Dame lacrosse program. <laughs> I was pretty blown away by that. They're a little better than the little uh, cubicles in the uh, ghost dining hall that my office is uh, <laughs> at that time. Um, but, you know, starting, starting a program 30 years ago, and you didn't, you didn't really start it, but, you know, you were kind of really getting it rolling. Um, probably in your mind, just like I didn't really start the Denver program, but in my mind, I, I kind of was getting it going in division one. And now you look at it now, you know, the, the biggest difference is, Oh my gosh, there's so many more good players to recruit now, aren't there? Oh, there's no doubt about it. You know, and it, it's different now too. I mean, when, when we started this program, I mean, honestly, the, the you know, the, the whole budget was under $50,000 a year. Yeah. That included my salary, our travel, um, obviously there were no scholarships involved in that, you know, that was our equipment budget. That was everything. Right. And, and, uh, so, you know, you see a lot of these programs now that, that are starting up and from day one, they're fully funded scholarship programs with facilities and everything else. And, and, uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a different launching point, I think, than, than, than it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago, uh, where, where these programs start. And then on the player side, yeah, it's it's just a completely different thing. I mean, there was no, you know, 30 years ago, there there wasn't lacrosse in Seattle. There wasn't there wasn't anybody to recruit in San Francisco or, or Orange County, California or Texas or any of those places. And and uh, you know, so you were pretty much going back to the Eastern Seaboard, you know, and 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 like you and I were talking earlier, you know, you were you were on the field working camps. You weren't sitting in a lawn chair watching guys play. You were you were out there on the field week after week at, at various camps, both to make some money and and to uh, to see kids and, and and get to know the kids and and have a chance to interact with them. Which in in some ways was a much better way to do it. I got to be honest with you. You know, by the by the end of three or four days of working with a kid in, in a camp setting you knew a heck of a lot more about that kid than you do after, after uh, a summer of watching him play. And, and, and if you're lucky, a few phone calls. Yeah, it's so true. And it was, you know, the, 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 just the joy of coaching and getting to know new coaches and working these camps and seeing good players. And then, you know, you take a stroll down to the Empire State games and then call the summer. That's right. That's, that's exactly right. So, yeah. so Kev, who, who would you say your biggest influence is? Um, have been on you uh, in, in your in your career as a coach? Well, I mean, my father, obviously, you know, because he was a coach when I was a kid, um, because he coached, you know, at the collegiate level, three different sports, um, you know, in, in, in lacrosse and soccer and, and basketball. Give us um, a quick bio on your dad. Uh, well, he, he, he started – he was he, – he got out of uh, – Duke in 1952 and he and he coached at St. Paul's school taught history and 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 coached at St. Paul's and then he went to Washington and Lee University and uh, was the head lacrosse coach the head soccer coach and the assistant basketball coach they actually named him the, the head basketball coach that summer after his second year there um, and so he was going to be the head coach of, of, of all three sports and uh, but then he went to Virginia and became the head soccer and lacrosse coach at Virginia and the assistant basketball coach. Um, so he, he, he grew up through all of that. And then in 1967 or 68, he got out of coaching, got into athletic administration. And, and then obviously, uh, you know, I, I was about eight, nine years old when he got out of coaching, but I certainly remember back in the days of him coaching and, and, uh, but then he was in an athletic administrator. So we, you know, he was the AD at Virginia. He was the AD at, at uh, Washington and Lee, he was the AD at, at uh, Notre Dame, and you know, so I, I kind of grew up around college sports, and and so obviously his influence, and and even the influence of all the coaches. Gosh, you know, I mean, when I was in high school, Terry Holland was the uh, you know basketball coach at at, at uh, UVA, and, and was a great coach. Um, and so I've always been a, 
a kind of somebody who, who loved to go to practices. I mean, I, I used to get off the bus uh, and, and go to practice, uh, you know, wherever, wherever, whatever practice was in session, you know, I, at the end of school, I, you know, we, I was one of seven kids. So mom was happy not to have me come home. She was, <laughs> she was glad that I had somewhere else to go. And uh, so I would, you know, when we were at WNL, when dad was at WNL, I used to literally walk to school and then after school walk to Washington and Lee and go to whatever practice was in session and be a ball boy for whatever practice was going on. Um, so it was, a, it was a fun way to grow up, but it was also, I, I grew up watching the coaches and, and watching the teams and studying the teams. Yeah, it's awesome. It's funny because I didn't have a, a dad who was uh, in athletic administration, but, uh, but I lived really close to the campus of Brown University. And I used to just in the fall run home and grab my cleats and my soccer ball and go over to Cliff Stevenson's practice. And Dom Starja was like the goalie coach. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I worked my way up to head ball boy and was like really went to practice every single day. And then if it was spring, it was run home, get my stick, get my stuff, and run over to Brown lacrosse practice. And, uh, but those are the days when you could do that kind of stuff, you know, no like staying aged, man, you know, there's, there's none of that. There's just like, there's just too, too much on the schedule, you know, to have like an afternoon to go do something like that. You know? Yeah. It, it was, a, it, there was a lot of freedom back in those days. It was, it was a pretty great way to grow up. Well, how cool is it that, you know, you, your, your dad was, uh, you know, a coach and, and now your son's a coach. Yeah. And, and at Washington and Lee, right. Yeah. Where, where dad started. So um, pretty funny. 62 years later, he's, he's got a, that's a amazing. Grandson coaching. That is really cool. Yeah. Well, we were talking about Will, and uh, you know he'll do well. As as many listeners don't know, but Will Corgan came out and spent a summer with me coaching when my my son was like a freshman, and we had a great time coaching three D the three D twenty sixteen team uh, back in the day, and uh, you know spent a summer going around to various camps and took him up to Canada, and he got to meet the likes of Darius Kilgore and Mike Lyons, and so uh, it was a it was a great time. It's fun to see him uh, moving up in the in the ranks and. Hopefully, yeah, that but he, he loved that. And, you know, he, he grew up obviously, you know, being around me coaching and watching coaching and, and everything. But but until you do it yourself, you don't know if it's what you want to do. And so right. that summer was it was a, a big thing for him. It really was the first time he kind of worked at coaching and he loved it. And, and uh, so I thank you for that. That's for yeah. Sure. Well, he was amazingly good at it as a young guy. I mean, but that's, you know, partly because he's been well coached. He's a son of a coach and, you know, it was pretty awesome. Now, as far as other influences, what about other lacrosse coaches? Who are the people that you kind of like, you know, looked up to that you kind of look back and say, you know, I learned a lot from these people over the years. And what, who are some of those folks? Well, you know, our coaches at Virginia, um, Jim Adams and, and, and uh, Bruce Arena are both guys that, that, that I learned an awful lot from. Um, you know, I, I've always said that Ace was, was great at preparing a team for a season. You know, I mean, you, you went into the year with a great fundamental base and a, and a good understanding of, of kind of what your team was and, and, and wanted to be, you know, going into the year. And I thought that – I think that's a really important thing. And coaching, and then Bruce is just um, you know he's he's been a guy that I've stayed in touch with over the years. Obviously, he's had most of his success in <clears throat> in soccer and not in lacrosse, as it as it turned out. But um, but you know, still an unbelievable coach and and a, and a great mentor. So the quick bio on Bruce Arena was uh, a JUCO transfer to uh, Cornell. His, yeah, his his first job, his first full time job. In coaching was when he came to Virginia my dad hired him to be the soccer coach but in, in all honesty probably primarily to be the assistant lacrosse coach um, <laughs> because back then soccer was was just nothing at Virginia and and lacrosse was was competing for championships and and uh, so you know it was it was really a, a probably more of a j the job was to be the assistant lacrosse coach but Bruce uh, being Bruce turned it into the best soccer job in the country, won five national championships there. Um, left there, went to uh, went to the D.C. United and, and won a couple championships there. Uh, subsequently became the U.S. national team coach, is the, is the all-time winningest coach for our national team, and, and uh, took the team as far as they've ever been in World Cup play, um, or farther than they've ever been and, and up to that point and, and, and since. Um, and then went back to the Galaxy and, and, 
MLS and, and won a couple championships there and then took the national job again this last year and obviously uh, kind of desperate circumstances. Uh, and, and, you know, unfortunately they didn't, they didn't get the result they wanted at the end of that. But I think uh, there's no question that Bruce is, uh, you know, the winningest soccer coach in, in the country. And, and in all honesty, you know, I, I, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody in, in, uh, in any level of sport in any sport in the United States in the last 25 years that has had more success than Bruce Arena. So, you know, not a bad guy to, yeah, you know, to have on your uh, Rolodex, I guess. So what have, uh, what are some of the things you've learned from him? You know, I mean, a lot of things. I just, just, you know, the way Bruce was, Bruce was always, you know, just kind of startlingly honest, uh, you know, and, 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 in a, in a very good way. It, it was, it was almost like a matter of fact thing, you know, um, it's just the way he is. It's just the way he, he, he does things. But I think as a coach, it's a great thing. Mike Waldvogel referred to him because so he was at Cornell, right? Yeah. With those they won championships, and when he was there as a soccer and lacrosse player at Cornell, right? Yeah. And Mike Waldvogel, my boss, one of my mentors, who we've talked a lot about over the years, um, used to refer. He was the assistant coach and was kind of like the defensive brains behind that organization, whatever. But he referred to Bruce as an allologist. <laughs> everything about everything. Hey, Bruce, I'm not, I'm not touching that one, but yeah, that's uh that's, that's a good, a good way to phrase it. But, you know, Bruce, Hey, he's just, he's a smart guy and he, and he calls it like he sees it, you know, and, and I've always appreciated that, but I think it's a great trade in a coach because I, I think, you know, if you can't have, you know, well, what we call around here, egoless clarity, Right. Um, you know, it's, it's not about whether this upsets you or doesn't upset you. It just is true. It's, it's yeah. the truth. So let's deal with it on that basis, you know? And, and, um, and so I think he's, he's great that way. He, you know, he understands, you know, the communications the critical piece of, of uh, coaching and, and, you know, everybody has their own style. That That's not to say that's the only way to do it, but it, it's certainly, you know, his way to just be straight and honest with people and, and, and go right at things as opposed to dancing around them. Um, and then he's also just, just, you know, things I can remember asking Bruce at one point when we were struggling to get some wins in the NCAA tournament and, and saying to Bruce, what do you do at the end of the year that your teams always play so well? And his simple answer was less. And I'm like, less what? He's like less than probably anybody else that we're playing against, you know? He's like, it's the end of the year. They've heard my voice all year. They, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing too much new that I'm going to actually teach them and, and coach them to do at that point. So what's more important is that they're fresh and, and excited to play and, and have their legs under them and, and are anxious to be at practice every day and, and that. And I want them to feel that way at the end of practice too. I don't, you know, it's, it's the end of the year. It's not the beginning of the year. There's a, you know, so, so the idea that you need to evolve as a coach over the course of a year in order to get your team, you know, to, to play the way you want them to play, I think was, was something that I hadn't really, you know, probably done as well as, as I needed to. And did you make that adjustment? Absolutely. Absolutely. So how long are your practices uh, in May? I mean, I, you know, if, when we're putting in the other team's scouting report and all of that kind of thing, we may go two hours. But outside of that, most, most of our practices are, are – uh, 90 minutes or less, you know, it, it's just, you know, it's just no reason to be out there for a long time. Yeah. Interesting. Any other, any other uh, influencers uh, come to mind in, in the look? Well, I mean, guys, I, um, yeah, I mean, a million guys. I mean, honestly, we, you know, because, it, because it, uh, I constantly borrowing, you know, from everybody that I see and, and, you know, so I, I read a great uh, Confucius, quote the other day uh where, where he said uh, i have very little innate knowledge what i do have is a is a reverence for history and a diligence to study it and i thought that's that's like coaching you just, <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to invent too many new things if you can just pay attention and and uh and, and be willing to to learn from others so you know i listen i every coach in our department here has seen me sitting up in their practices at one time or another um, I, I go around and visit coaches, you know, and, and I love basketball particularly. I think I just, I love basketball. And I also um, think it, it, it 
applies so many of the aspects of the game apply to our game that it's a great place where I feel like I can learn from guys who've achieved you know if you if you can become the top of the heap and in that game as popular as it is and as as uh, as as you know many people as there are out there doing it if you can become Mike Shashevsky or Tom Izzo or or uh, you know somebody like that in that game at that level then then you're a master of the craft, right? And, and so I go to watch guys like that and spend time with those kinds of people anytime I can. I actually went uh, in 1994. I uh, sent Bobby Knight a letter, asked if I could come watch some practices. And so on my way back, this is back when you could do this, on my way back from a two-week vacation of skiing in, in Utah, I stopped in Bloomington and, uh, and watched three days of practices, hung out with their head manager. He wouldn't meet with me because he said, hey, in season, I just don't meet with anybody. But, I mean, the stands were packed. It was a closed practice. You had to get permission to be there. But there was a lot of coaches, international, all over the world, people there watching uh, those those practices. And what a treat that was. I mean, that guy was like as teacher as there are. So you sharpen your saw. You, you know what's funny, Jamie? I, I've, I've been to see, like, some of the – Best coaches in the country, and I've and you know John Calipari and Tom Izzo and Mike Shashevsky and on and on and and uh, there's only one person that's ever said no when I asked him if I could come watch their practice. Really? <laughs> so I'm glad to know he said yes to somebody, but he yeah. wouldn't let me uh, in. There. I gave him a yellow cross sweatshirt. <laughs> yeah, that could that could have been the uh, the flip side of my dad's career. Is like uh, my dad and him had a couple of run-ins over the course of many years. Uh, <laughs> so, you, know, you remember when Bobby Knight slammed the phone at the at the scorers table that time, and, and that was my dad sitting in front of that phone. <laughs> he was supposed to be the NCAA rep to that game. It tells you, Bobby, calm down. <laughs> that is really funny. Yeah, it is. So um, you know. I, I had a, a segment I always talk to coaches about is how, how they sharpen your saw, how they sharpen their saw, you know, but you just kind of answered that. You're just uh, with your Confucius quote, you know, you're diligent about, uh, re, you know, re studying history and paint and being interested in it. And uh, whether it's other sports, you know, I, I, wouldn't you say that there's so much to be learned both within our sport, but all through the other sports that, you know, if you're a coach, these are the things that can, that the top guys are doing. Yeah, no question. I mean, and I, you know, listen, I, I'll extend that to reading as well because I, I read you know, pretty voraciously, to be honest, and, and love reading. Um, and there, there's so many great things you can learn. And, and again, it doesn't, it's not just sports. It, it can come from, from business things. And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of business readers like, or like to read what coaches think. And, and I think the same is true the other way. You're talking about organizational efficiency and, motivation and and uh you know all, all the all the important things that, that, that both business leaders and, and coaches are doing so you can learn a lot from those things and i i read those things all the time i got a great new book for you the captain class what is it i'm really excited about it. the captain class and it, it, it basically you know the book good to great you ever, you ever read, read that book? great book right and one of the great things about that book is the guy Jim Collins, who wrote that book, he didn't start with the premise of something and say, all right, I'm going to find everything I can to prove this premise, right? He started with the ideas, first, I'm going to spend the first half of my time figuring out what is great, like what defines greatness in a company, right? And so, you know, it, 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 it wasn't a simple thing to do because it had to be sustained it had to reach a certain level of excellence. It had to exceed other people's results and, and, and by a certain amount and, 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 and then sustain it and, and everything. So that was a big part of it, just defining what is great and then go back and look at, okay, now that I've defined great and I can, can limit it to a number of companies that meet this metric of what great is, now look and say, all right, what do they have in common? And, and, and what's distinct and, and unique about each of them. And, and then that's the thing to learn, you know, is all these people, what they had in common, you know, obviously that's a, a pretty important thing. And that's the same thing that this guy has done with, with teams. He's, he's first gone out and said, okay, what's a great team? And, and some teams that you would think would make it, like you would have thought GE would have made the, the, you know, good to great, 
you know, but it didn't qualify on the basis of what he ultimately chose as his criteria is even as good a company as that is. Well, he's, he's the same thing. The, the, the bulls, the nineties bulls don't qualify, right? Because they, so they just didn't meet the metrics of what it took to be a great team. So then he goes back and says, all right, what, what do these things have? What do these teams and organizations have in common? So, it's a very uh, I, I, empirically based, I guess, uh, study of the thing, but, but can pull out some pretty cool stuff. What's it called again? The Captain Class. And um, who wrote it? It's Sam Walker. Um, yeah, well, that's, um, man, that's, that's awesome. And to figure out what books people are reading, I mean, that's like, you know, that's so many, so many people out there that want to be great coaches are looking for that next great book, and I'm going to have to go buy that one. The Philocrosophy Podcast is brought to you by JM3 Sports. Go to www.jm3video.com to get more information on the JM3 Video Assessment Tool. Um, one of the topics I want to talk about was, you know, Notre Dame is, is really well known for its defense. And, um, you know, it's been that way for a long time, way back to the, uh, was it Mike Iorio when he was your uh, first first-team All-American back in the late 90s? You guys upset Duke maybe in the uh, NCAA tournament? Mid-90s, yeah. Mid-90s. Yeah. Um, you know, and you've had a, sort of a defensive philosophy for a long time. And it's gone through, you know, several coordinators. And obviously, you know, Jerry Byrne, your defense coordinator now, does a great job and is really well-known because of it. And we, I'd like to talk about that. But let's talk big picture about Notre Dame defense and kind of where that all came from and then maybe how it evolved. Well, I mean, again, you're, you're a product of your environment in, in a lot of ways and, and uh, the coaches, you know, the, the people that I watched when I was growing up. But, but my, my, my uh, I guess, general philosophy was always, you know, kind of – as a coach, uh, it's like a doctor. First, do no harm, right? Um, don't, don't, don't get in your own way of winning a game. And to me, uh, that means just be a sound fundamental team and, and really understand the game and understand, uh, you know, how not to hurt yourself in, in the course of a game. So I think when you start with that premise, you end up on the defensive side a lot because that's where you control a lot of that, you know, stuff. And, and if you're, if you're a smart, sound, fundamental team that communicates well and, and does all that, that leads to great defense. Um, and you don't have to necessarily have great defensive players to, to play great defense in, in that, you know, with that philosophy. Offensively, you still got to, somebody's got to beat somebody. Somebody's got to, put the ball in the back of the net. There's still things that have to happen, maybe more, more than, than offense. So I always felt like from, on a year-to-year basis, you had a little bit more control at the defensive end of the field. And, and if you could be a great defensive team, then teams had to beat you. You weren't going to beat yourself. Um, and if you make yourself hard to beat, then you are hard to beat. And, and, and as you get more ability, that, that remains true. That doesn't change as you, as you build. So – when, when I first started out here, we knew our, our level of talent wasn't a, a top five, top ten level of talent. But we felt like if we could play great defense and, and, and be smart about the way we played, that we could compete with top five and top ten teams. And so the first year that you won a tournament game was, was that 95? Yes. 95. Yeah. Pretty we, awesome. We beat Duke when they were actually – they were really good. Really good. They were. They were really good. They were. They were. They were pissed at being uh, number five and, and having to play against us uh, because they thought they were one of the couple, two or three best. They had just won the ACC championship and 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 they they were one of the two or three best teams in the country. I think. I think that was a really good Duke team. We just had a good day. And as you've sort of gone through over the years, how would you say the Notre Dame defense has evolved? You know, I mean, the biggest thing is we just, I think there's a, you're, you're, you're making nuance adjustments to things um, because you have to play against the, you know, the, the two man game that's, that's so different now than, you know, it's funny that, 30 years ago, the two-man game was more behind the cage, you know, kind of a north-south using picks, east-west to feed, north-south to get to the goal, 
You know what I mean? And But there wasn't a lot of nuance to that two-man game, but you had to play that. Then that almost went away. You know, yeah. then it, it almost – there was almost a time where everybody was like, well, don't bring another guy to the ball defensively. Yeah. You know what I mean? Give a guy space and, and don't bring another guy to the ball. That just confuses everything. And now we're obviously back in the phase where it's like, yeah, it confuses the defense more than it confuses the offense if you're if you're good at it. And and so, you know, you have to make those adjustments defensively as you play against these different things. But we haven't changed appreciably, I gotta be honest with you. Yeah. Um, the the thing we've always believed in is is uh, keep it simple. And and because because the game's not simple, right? It's it's not it's not to say that the game is simple and that the decisions that players have to make are simple. It's actually the opposite. The game is, is tough and the, and the decisions players have to make are, are, are difficult and nuanced. And, and uh, so the, keep, the simpler you can keep the, the, the basis on which they're making those decisions, um, the, the better they are to, able to make the decisions, you know? So it's, it's so- I've always been impressed with the discipline you guys have had in just saying, hey, this is how we're going to play. You know, I mean, uh, we're not going to play zone. We're not going to lock some, shut somebody off. We're not going to double pull. I mean, you double pull wings and stuff, and so you'll get a matchup like that. But generally, you just kind of play how you play. And, um, you know, it's really hard in the era, era of Bill Belichick of making adjustments and doing all these different things, you know, as a coach, not to try to, you know, you know, be multiple in the things you're doing, but it's, it's pretty amazing how consistent, you know, I feel like if you take, if you looked at a video of Notre Dame defense over the years, it looks exactly the same. Everyone's got this posture, their heads are all turning, you know, they're, you know, like, are they sliding? Or are they not sliding? You know, you never know. They're like, Oh, they're not going. Yeah. Well, that's next time they go. And you just don't know because so many times it's all about reads with the way you guys do it seems like, and um, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. We, we don't want to be the marionettes on the sidelines saying, we'll slide to this. We won't slide to that. Well, you know, we'd rather say you're going to make that decision on the field, but here, here's the basis on which you're going to make it. And that basis isn't going to change a lot, you know, from week to week or game to game. So you can get really good at making those decisions about when to go and when not to. And it's amazing because now it's the kids making the adjustments you know, when something and when they were late, you know, the next time they won't be, you know what I mean? Yeah. As opposed to the coach having to be like, all right, we got to go to this guy. We're not going to that guy, which actually, you know, I think your point on how, how sophisticated a game really is, is if you can keep what you're doing simple, it allows you to process cleaner probably and yeah. make those adjustments. The players can make those adjustments. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and, and listen, that's why Jerry's so good. Jerry's a great teacher of the game. And, and so, you know, it's, it's, we're not outsmarting people. Yeah. You know? I mean, we're not, we're not, we're not trying to outsmart people. We're trying to out execute. Them. Yeah. It's really cool. You know, what's really, I mean, I, you look, what's your guy, what do you guys average in penalties? You know, I'd say, uh, you know, less than three, something like that. Per yeah, game. absolutely. Yeah. We, yeah. We, and, we and so that it's in an era of, you know, like the, you know, when Bill Tierney really got his defense going and it was like no checking and we're not going to foul and we're going to slide and recover and, you know, and, and, and you guys, um, you know, don't foul much and you play very disciplined. Um, but it's interesting that you guys do put the ball on the ground in ways that are really simple and fundamental, like on a lead poke, you know what I mean? When you approach someone, your stick is in their chest and if they bring their stick across – the ball is going to be on the ground. You also teach the V-hole, which, which some people are like completely against because they think it's just not strong. Um, but I look at the V-hole as, you know, well, it, it, it puts great ball pressure on lefty on lefty or righty on righty. But I, I think there's something to, I look at the defensemen over the years um, since I've been coaching against you and your players end up putting the ball on the ground without really going out of their way to try to take it away. I mean, you know, whether it was uh, Driscoll 10, 10, 12, 13 years ago, or whether it's, you know, your first team All-American uh, this year, um, these guys, you know, are fundamental in what they're doing. But I feel like the V-hole in and of itself, this is just my theory, actually teaches you how to you actually just use your stick as a defender and how to leverage, how to let people in and how to realize, you know, that, that you, can, you can apply some pressure while maintaining your position. I was just curious. Well, that, I think that's the key thing. It's about your feet. 
you know, I mean, it, it's, it's not about your stick. It, it's about using your stick to keep your feet in good position, you know, right. As opposed to the, you know, the other way around. Using your stick to keep your feet in good position. So you kind of hold people up or you hold them, whatever it is. Yeah. It's really cool. It's really interesting. And then the other, the other thing that you guys, and you know, I've always been so uh, impressed when I've come, I've watched a lot of your guys practices over since I stopped coaching against you. Um, and, um, and the way you guys work on your riding and clearing, how you do it, you know, when, when it comes down to a game, you know, it changes the tides of a game for you guys pretty consistently. Um, you work on it in, in a lot. And what would you say, big picture, to coaches out there that are really interested in trying to, you know, be a great riding and clearing team, especially if they're a high school that doesn't have 40 guys on the roster? Like, what do you do? How do you become good at that? Well, as much as anything, I think riding and clearing is a mindset. You know, and, and if you're going to be a good clearing team, you have to have guys who are committed to doing that. And it means that, that you're, you, you have to work at it on every single possession. Because the thing about it is, you know, the, the truth of it is they've got a huge advantage, right? They've got a, they've got a 55 by 60-yard area where they've got one extra guy, right? So if you don't work really hard at – at certain things and you and you don't get really good at identifying certain situations then they're going to clear the ball every time they just there's too much room and you know there's a lot of space out there and and guys are tired from playing offense or whatever you know so it really has to be a mentality that listen when that ball changes hands you know we've got a different role now and and, and you've got to you've got to work just as hard at that as you did trying to score a goal um because if if they, you know, if the, the truth of it is, let's say they have 20 clears and a, and a half, um, 15 of them, you're probably going to have no chance. Uh, you know what I mean? But you don't know which are the five that you're going to have a chance on. So you have to work on all 20 of them so that the five that you, have a, that you have a chance, whether it's because they made a mistake or because the pressure allowed you to limit the, you know, the, the field and all that, that doesn't just happen. You can't just, oh, here's the time. We let's ride now. You got to ride all 20 times so that when that time comes up, you're there, and 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 your guys recognize it and and jump on it, and and can turn that over and turn that into something. Would you say ball pressure might be the uh, single biggest factor? In yeah, because because without ball pressure, like I said, there's too much space and too much time for everybody if there's not ball pressure. So to me. That's the whole key to riding. Yeah, cool. I love I love coming to watch you guys practice. Um, it's really it's it's pretty awesome, and uh, I, I recommend it to anybody that that can get out to one of your clinics. Um, it's really uh, it's really awesome stuff. Um, I got a question for you in this in, the, in in player development. How much do you guys, you know, both on both sides of the ball, defensively and offensively, how much film work do you guys do with your individuals to help them? learn what it is that they're doing, what they need to do, what they're doing well, what they should take better advantage of, what they're not taking advantage of, so on and so forth. You know, it's interesting you, you asked that. I was just talking with Matt Carrick the other day, and, and, and we need to do more um, with individuals. But, but it's funny because we – and the reason we're talking about it is the rules change this year, right, about time. And, oh, yeah. and, and so all of a sudden everything has to be – Ahead, of, you have to know ahead of time, and you know you have to you have to have all this stuff planned out. And it's like, guy, guy, guy just wants to come in and spend an hour watching film with you. It's you know, it's not as easy as it as it should be. What are the new rules? Yeah, just new the the you know time management rules by the NCAA that that, that, that have made it a little tougher. Um, but but the bottom line was we we didn't feel like we did enough of that this year. We watch film as a team almost every day. Yeah. Right? Somewhere, you know, 15 to 25 minutes, you know, of, of film every day. Um, and, and, again, we're, you know, it's all geared towards the teaching points of whatever we're, we're most trying to emphasize that day in practice or, 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 or from the day before in practice. Um, and, and we film every practice so that we have constant new stuff to watch. We're not watching old stuff. But, even though know, it's funny. You know, when I first got here, Jamie, you know, we used to have uh, Friday night at the movies where we would we would get films like I can remember having a Virginia you know writing back to Coach Adams and them saying hey can I get some some game film um, 
because I would show the Virginia Hopkins game. And I would say, look, they, these guys are better than us. This is what they, you know, these guys, let's watch this because this is really good lacrosse and let's, and let's learn from it, you know. And there was no YouTube, so the guys are all pumped up to watch that game. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. That there was, there was, you couldn't find you. There was no way to get, you know, game action. You know, you didn't. You saw what you saw in person back then. Uh, there was nothing on TV, and and there was no YouTube or anything else. So, um, but anyway, we, you know, I've always been a big believer in film. We haven't used it as effectively as I would like to. And as we want to in, in individual player development. Um, yeah, it's hard because you, you're trying to do the whole team, you know, right. but you need to you need to put time into individuals, too. And um, I've been doing a lot of these video assessments lately of individual players. And it's been really interesting to me to just watch a player and just break down, you know, say it's an offensive player, their dodges, their their, their feeds, their shots, their off the ball movements and looking at like, hey, you do this really well, but you only did it twice in three games. You know, yeah. you should probably do this like once or twice a quarter. You know, I mean, it's just like you're too good at it. And this, you should probably like not bother with this one because you got no angle or whatever it is. And there's simple adjustments. I remember coaching with the Atlanta Blaze last year, and we had pros that really weren't great at getting what they want, what they should want, just like high school players. And I'm sure it's the same. It's the same with you. I personally think that, you know, there's no way without film you can be as good as you want to be. You just because you don't know and we all I mean how many times Kevin have you watched the game watch the game live and been like well that guy played really well and then you go back and watch you're like he really wasn't that good or or he played terrible and then you look you're like you know what he really wasn't that bad yeah it's, it's why all of us say you know after you've been in coaching for a while you realize that you know it's never as good as you think it is after a win and it's never as bad as you think it is after a loss you go back and you watch what happened and you're like oh it was a, you know small yeah, thing here or or a certain thing there that, 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 that made it seem a lot worse than it was, you know, or a lot better than it was. Hey, the last topic I want to chat with you about here is, um, is just recruiting. There was definitely going to be some parents that jump on this podcast and, and um, you know, first of all, what, what's your take on, what's your take on the new rules and how do you think it's better for kids that, you know, that, that they don't have to worry about being ready to go as summer before ninth grade? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of things, that, that are going to play itself out. We're still learning and we're still, we still really haven't been through this in its purest form, which is the kids having not communicated with the coaches. You know, the 2020 class still has a lot of guys who were committed already back when they were rising freshmen and, and they were still the 2020 class, but they were rising freshmen or rising sophomores, you know, before these rules came into play. So this, this is, this is not the purest version yet of, of what this is going to be. Um, that said, listen, the biggest thing is kids can go out and play and not perform. Um, you know, like I said, you know, when we were talking earlier, yeah, you can't get better if you're not willing to make some mistakes and, and try some things and, and all that. But if you're performing for coaches on the sideline who are making decisions at that moment about whether they're going to recruit you or not, then, then you're not going to try that stuff. You're not going to do those things. If you're not doing that during the summer, you're certainly not going to do it during the middle of practice in the middle of your season because your coach is not, you know, not necessarily going to want you doing that. Um, then when do you do it, you know? And, and so I, I think it's, it's going to allow kids to, to get back and concentrate more on their development and less on being recruited up until, you know, the, the, the summer before their junior year. And, and I think that's a, that's a good positive thing. Um, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of things I'd love to see happen. I'd love to see summer leagues come back. So kids don't even have, you know, your parents don't need to be there and you don't need to fly a thousand miles. You need to strap on your stuff and go out there and play against the guys in town that want to play too. <laughs> I think there's an awful lot of guys. You know, I, I was talking to somebody this summer and, and we were talking about the Powell brothers, right? Yeah. Uh, those guys developed into the best players in the world playing three on three, basically. Right, because there weren't there weren't ten guys in their town who knew how to play when they first started. Right, so they they just played three on three, and they could develop everything that you needed to do to be the best player in the world playing three on three. So, Sandlot model. Yeah. I've been on a huge Sandlot model kick, and I I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, I I think it's the it's the great news that every yeah. parent should know is that to be honest. If you just get a little good, a good little three-on-three -three game going, and it doesn't have to be like the Powell Brothers quality, you'll get yeah. better at lacrosse playing those games. 
There's no question. And, and, and listen, you know, the, the whole thing about multi-sport athletes and everything else, okay? Multi-sport athletes are great. We all want multi-sport athletes. The problem with multi-sport athletes in, in this day and age is everybody thinks that playing multiple sports is an excuse to not practice the sport you want to be good at, you know? I mean, you can be a multi-sport athlete and be a basketball player, but not if you don't practice shooting. You, you'll be a lousy multi-sport athlete, you know, a lousy basketball player for a multi-sport athlete. You may be the best athlete on the court. You can do certain things and make certain plays, but you'll never play at a high level if you don't learn to shoot. And, and you know, the same thing in lacrosse. Just because you're playing three other sports or two other sports doesn't mean that's an excuse that you can't bang the wall or, or play three-by or, or do whatever you need to do to develop the skills that go along with being a great lacrosse player, you know. Um, so – you know, I, I just think there's a there's a a mentality that we got to get back to, and and in, in lacrosse, and, and I I hope these rules will help it, Jamie. It, yeah, I think the mentality is just play the daggone game. Stop, yeah. stop with you. You don't have to travel a thousand miles. You don't have to be wearing matching helmets. You don't have to be. You know, all you got to do is have a stick in your hand and some guys to play with, and a ball, <laughs> and a goal, and you're and you're in business. And it can be a tennis ball, and it can be a three-by-three three goal, and it can be four friends instead of instead of 25 friends or, you know what I mean? But it can uh, – all these things work. And I, I, I really think one of the weaknesses in our game is, is in, in, in the growth and development and popularization of our game is that there hasn't been kind of a pickup version, right? In any town that you go to, you can find a basketball hoop and if you can find a basketball hoop and a basketball, you got a game. Whether you have one other person, right, or or you can play everything from horse to to whatever, you know. And you got three people, then you're you're playing, you know, knockout. And, and if you got you know ten people, you're playing full court. And you know, what I mean, I mean, so it's it's there's all these versions of the game that you can play and develop your skill. And and if all, none of those people are there, all you need is a ball to work on your skill. And and I think we need to get that kind of mentality in lacrosse and, and we need to have those games that are popularized versions of, Hey, just drag out the three by get a tennis ball. And, and if you have, you know, four people there, you got a game. It's interesting, Kevin, because I was showing you the advanced stats that I do on um, some of my player assessments, right? The video assessments. And a lot of times I'll do a game from a summer game and the athlete will have 15 touches in that game. They'll have three dodges, two shots, one goal, one assist, two ground balls, five off-ball movements in that hour chunk of time. Yeah. I've also done the stats on three-by games. Yeah. It's like in an hour, you're getting over 100 touches, you're taking 25 shots, you've got like, you know, 18 dodges, and it's just – it's a math equation. And yeah. And the thing is, is that you need to play these full-field games because full-field lacrosse is a part of the process. Um, but when – what's happened is – Organized sports, it's all turned into full field stuff. And, and, and the reason why everybody has to sign up for more and more and more is because of the inefficiency of overall team practices, whether it's, whether it's a practice you and I run, we can't run as an efficient, we can't compete with, the, with three by as far as reps. Even, right. though, even though I, I would say you probably, you know, really take pride in maximizing reps in a Notre Dame practice, but you still can't compete with three on three. You know, yep. it's, like it's all day. So the last point on this is super interesting that Dave Huntley always used to talk about. And I, and I chatted with, uh, with Mark Burnham just recently is the Native Americans per capita are pumping out a higher number of world-class players by far than anybody else. We, we figured out that there's – Red figured out that there's only probably about 2,000 Iroquois. And yet you look at how many world-class players they're, they're putting out. It's, it's off the charts. I mean, there's like 140 kids in the Onondaga nation playing lacrosse. And, you yeah. know, five of them are like the five of the top 20 players in the world. Yeah. What do they do? All they do is pick up. Pick up. They play box lacrosse and they play pickup. It's pretty it's – pretty I couldn't good. agree more. I think, it, I think it's a critical thing for, for our game to grow. And, and you know – Getting back to your question about recruiting um, and and the and the the new legislation and the effects of it, I I think that's one of the things that could be one of the effects of it. Is look, you 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 have until 
you know, your sophomore year to, to just worry about playing and developing and having fun with the game and, and, and getting reps and, and, and doing those things. And don't worry about being recruited. Don't worry about choosing a college. Don't worry. You know, th those, those aren't things that a freshman in, in high school should be worried about. They should be worried about getting better, you know, fostering their love for the game, you know, having fun with their friends. You know, that's, that's plenty. It's funny because I think that what, what most parents don't realize is, and I think you're going to agree with the statement, but the, the by far number one thing is being good enough, developing. Yeah. All we'll find you. Good. We'll find you if you're good enough. <laughs> you will. You know, I mean, yeah, you got to find, you want to be on a good club team. You know, if you're on a club team that's, you know, you know, losing every game 15 to one, you know, you, you got to make an adjustment. You know, do you have to be on the best club team to be found? No, absolutely not. Um, and I think that, you know, when you think about, you know, we talk a little bit about advocates, it, it really helps to, to be one of the reasons why being on a good club team is that they, that the guy who runs that might have a relationship with you and, you know, it might be a better chance for them to be like, Hey, take a look at this. But there's a lot of parents that think that like, Oh, so-and-so is going to get me recruited, you know, true or false. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. That, 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 how many guys can he do that with? You know I mean? So <laughs> great yeah. question. Yeah. So that, no, that, that's, that's not the, like you said, the, the, the biggest thing is, is developing, you know, getting, get, get to be a good player. It's awesome. And, and besides that, you know, that's what you control, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to, do you want to put your effort into something you don't control or something that you do control? So, yeah. Well, Kevin, I can't tell you how much I appreciated uh, you coming on. I really enjoyed, as usual, talking lacrosse with you. And uh, enjoy the rest of the summer. And uh, let's uh, see if we can figure out our little uh, rendezvous to talk box lacrosse at some point. Absolutely. Thanks, Jamie. Great to talk to you, man. Yeah, have a good one. All right. See you, brother. See you, buddy. That was fun. The Philocrosophy Podcast is brought to you by JM3 Sports. Go to www.jm3video.com to get more information on the JM3 video assessment tool.